If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30, we want to finish this chapter this evening um, as we slowly approach the uh, rise of David to his throne that we best know him by. 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we looked at the first 10 verses this morning. We want to look at verses 11 to 31 this evening. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. The writer of Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We have made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? He said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines, from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, uh, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. And David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to uh, follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted him. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You should not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He's preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. He made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Eror, in Sethmoth, in Eshtimoah, in Rakal, in the cities of Jeremihilites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for the, all the places where David and his men had roamed. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as always, we ask you to open our, our hearts and our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our mouths, uh, that we will be transformed by the power of the gospel. May we see here not just a generous king, but the generous king who gives liberally all who would come to him. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hopefully by now, I don't know how, how many months we've been in the story of David and 1 Samuel, but hopefully by now you've, you've learned one of the big questions of every text is, 
Will David be another Saul? Remember that Samuel warned the Israelites that if they go the way of kings, these kings will oppress them. It will tax them. They will send their, their, their children into battle, into wars, and, and will enlarge their estate. And they, 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 they will do these sort of things. And so we see in Saul, that's precisely what Saul is, has done and, and has now lost the anointing that God had placed upon him. But the question is, will the next king do the same thing? How often do we make the same mistake? We think, well, I don't like this leader. I'll just replace him with the next leader, only to discover I don't like the next leader. I'll replace him with a third leader. I don't like that third leader. I'll just replace him with a fourth leader. And so the question is, will David be another Saul or will he be something better? Now, one of the things that separates David from Saul that this passage illustrates is, that, is the issue of generosity. You see, a leader can be either open-fisted or it can be closed-fisted. A closed-fisted leader is one that, that, that enjoys the power that comes with the title and or position. They demand and never give. They take and never share. They rule and never serve. And these closed-fisted leaders can have a lot of power like a king or very little power like the head of a small committee in a local Baptist church, right? You, you, you ever have someone that maybe, other churches have, of course, never happened here. They just, they just hoard this small amount of authority given to them, right? It's a closed-fisted leader. An open-fisted leader is not motivated by power, but influence. They humbly serve, they patiently lead, they meekly give. David, in this narrative, chooses to be generous. He chooses to be a generous, open-fisted king. Well, this morning we saw the discovery, right? They, they, they ride back uh, after being kicked out of the, the Philistine army. I mean, if, if you can't make it in the Philistine army, can you really make it anywhere, right? And so, so they get kicked out of the Philistine army, and, and, and they're having to return back to, to their new home of Ziklag. And there in the distance, they see the, the smokes rising. You can, you can see them move with, with greater haste, wanting to know what has happened. And they discover the, the, the kidnapping of, of their wives and their children, the raiding of of their possessions, the, the burning of their city. So we saw the discovery this morning and how the men responded to that tragic discovery. Well, in verses 11 through 20, we see the recovery of what it is that was taken. And so uh, uh, what they must do now that David has cast some sort of vision after fleeing to God, after finding strength in, in Christ, David then uh, tells the men that, that we, we can't simply stay here all day. It is, there is a time to mourn, we learn in Ecclesiastes. But there is a time to move. There's a time for action. And after an appropriate amount of mourning, they move to action. And what we see here is that the men decide, after all, I don't think we're, we, we, should, we should stone, stone David after all. Hey, I just wonder, who was leading that business meeting? Right? I mean, in verse 6, they're juggling stones to see which one can get better velocity out of it, right? I kind of, yeah, this one will do, right? I got my stone. <laughs> Jethro, you got yours? And now by verse 11 through 20, they, 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 they've dropped uh, this idea of stoning. And let's just pause there for a minute, okay? I think there's something we, we can learn here. And that is that eventually hot heads do cool down. Hot heads do cool down, which means you should guard. We talked about this some this morning. You should guard your heart in the heat of the moment, right? 
Several years ago, there was a, a, a friend or someone I knew that, that had received an email from a mutual friend that was uh, uh, tested their patience. Let's just put it that way. And you can see that they were getting incensed. How dare you speak to me? How dare you ask this? How dare you, right? I know what I'm going to do. Reply. Right? And just going at it. And I said, you know what? Let's just, just, just pause. Just for a minute, right? I'm on the outside looking in. Let me Do me a favor. Go to bed. So go to bed. If you still feel the way you do when you wake up in the morning, I support whatever you say in that email, right? I mean, not really, but, but I get it. You're going to send the email. Okay. But first, get your good, good night's rest. Well, you know how the story ends, right? Wake up the next morning and send the email. Right? There is something there, isn't it? Yes, the text tells us, Bible tells us, that it pays not to let the sun go down on your anger. Yes. But also practically... It pays to get some rest before making rash decisions. Both are in play here. These guys initially want to uh, replace leaders. They want to impeach them via death. But later they realize, no, that's not the right decision. I was speaking out of my pain and sorrow. Well, regardless, the men clearly plan on getting their wives and children. Of course, right? It's an action film, right? Right? Uh, you take my girl, I'm going to come get you. I'm going to get my girl back, right? I'm just going to warn you now, I'm going to get my girl back, right? And, and so that's exactly what they decided they, they, they are going to do. But notice what happens starting in verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. Now, now they just so happened to find Now, remember, at this point, we don't know who done this. I spoiled it this morning. It's the Amalekites. We don't know that yet. All we have is, is David is saying, look, we got to go get our girls back. And everyone says, well, how are we going to get our girls back? We don't know who stole the girls. They don't know who stole our kids. How are we going to do this? And it just so happens, perhaps one of the scouts or maybe as someone is, is roaming the land trying to find their possessions, trying to find any sort of trace, any tracks in the, in, in, in the sand. And, we, and they realize, hey, there's a guy over here. He's a random guy over here, and he sees that he's suffering in need, and he brings this Egyptian to David. And little do they know, this guy is going to shape the story. It just so happens this Egyptian is exactly what they need to go get their families back. Now remember, again, David doesn't know who this guy is. He doesn't know that he's associated with Ziklag and with the Ziklag raid. He doesn't know the Egyptian could lead him to his wife and, and children. And he doesn't know any of this. What David has presented is a dying man in need of his help. That's it. And what we get in verses 11 through, through 15 is not just the conversation that comes out of this, but notice initially at the end of verse 11 on into verse 12, the first priority David has for this man is charity. He, he goes out of his way. Notice there, verse 12, really then verse 11. He gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece, a cake of figs. That's a fig newton, I assume. I, I guess that's where that term comes from. I don't know, that may be the uh, McDonald translation. You can buy at a local Christian bookstore that are all closed now. And two clusters of, of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. What is he? He sees a man in need. Here, here is David in panic mode. We gotta go get our girls back. We gotta get the kids back. But uh, wait. Over here, this guy needs charity. David is generous to him. But notice also what, what the text says here. He says that the man has been gone. There at the end of verse 12. He had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days, three nights. It's a weird detail, isn't it? Go back to verse 1. Verse 1 of this chapter. Now, when David and his men... 
came to Ziklag on what day? It's the third day. Hmm. Okay, well, the information that, that the man gives David is, is rather important here. We see this again in verse 11, but really starting in verse 13, going down to verse 15. The information he gives David allows him to, to go get his family back. The first thing he discovers is that this Egyptian slave was abandoned by the Amalekites. You see it there in verse 13. And the, there's some real irony here. Why was he abandoned by the Amalekites? Well, because to his Amalekite master, this guy was useless. You've been sick. You're, you're, you're a dragon on our team. It would be better for us if you just died in the desert. So he disregards the Egyptian slave. He's nothing but property to him. He's just going to get rid of the slave. And it's that very same useless slave that proves to be useful to David. Now, now, if we had time, we could go in a whole direction here about an ethic of pro-life ministry, right? That there is no life that is useless before God. There is no life that should be just easily discarded. The second thing we see here and discover about this man is that the Amalekites were behind the raid. We see that in verse 14. He, he, he tells us that uh, this band of soldiers raided the Philistine land and especially Ziklag, he says, which belongs to Judah. So that'd be the more southern, across the southern border. And we burn Ziklag with fire. Now, I don't know if the Egyptian is aware of who David is or where David is from. I, I don't know. Maybe they're in Ziklag at this time. I, I don't know. But, but the man is just spilling the beans. He got his belly full. Was at the Baptist uh, church potluck, pre-COVID, of course. And, and, and he's eating. He says, you know what? Uh, th th you ask me who I am. I I I'm an abandoned slave. And the people I was with, they were out raiding all these communities. And they burned Ziklag to the ground. Now, why would they burn Ziklag? I believe it is because the Philistines were neutral with the Amalekites until David showed up and attacked from Ziklag. This is a return favor from the raid that David had on them. We talked about it briefly this morning. The third thing they discover from this Egyptian slave is that he is willing to lead David to the raider's camp. Right? This is sort of important. Do you know where these guys are? Yeah, I'll take you right there. Why wouldn't he? The, the Amalekites, instead of taking care of him, Abandon him to die. It's David and his men who have welcomed him in, despite his race, ethnicity, background. Just welcome him in as one of one of them. After all, isn't this David's uh, a motley crew, ragtag band of, of merry men? These are we learn later. Some of them are kind of rough guys, right? And and so you add Egyptian to this scenario, and it makes complete sense. So he is willing to help in exchange for his life. Lead David and his men to the Amalekites that raided and burned Ziklag. This is what we call in the business providence. What are the chances they happen to come across this man at this time who can provide what it is that they need? So true to his word, verse 16 to 20, uh, the Egyptian slave leads David and his men to the Amalekite camp and, and they discover the revelry over the stolen spoil and booty. And so what does David do to quickly look at it? He raids them. He returns the favor. He, he leaves 200 behind. We saw that this morning. He, he's now got his 400 men. Remember, David's initial army was about 400 men. He later added 200. He's back down to 400 for this attack. He raids them. And, and you'll see there in verse 17 um, that um, 400 of the Amalekites escape. 
Now, now, why is that detail important? Yes, there's parallelism here. David attacks with 400 and only 400 remain of, of, of the Amalekites, right? It also implies the number of, of the, of the uh, army here was quite significant. David attacks at, 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 at dawn. I know your text is twilight. There's Hebrew reasons why I, I think it's at dawn. He wouldn't want to attack at night because he doesn't want to hurt his wife and kids or any other wife and kids. He likely attacks in the morning at dawn, takes them by surprise, and likely wipes out hundreds of them, and, and only 400 are left. So we see a Gideon situation likely where you have a small army against a much larger army, and the small army uh, succeeds. And so verse 18 through, through 20, did, not only did they enact justice in raiding the, the Amalekites, but they recover everything that had been lost, namely their wives and children, in addition to other things left behind. In fact, the recovery is so great, they describe this as, this is David's spoil. Nothing else can explain what has happened here except David. So, so notice where David has been as a leader here. He's sort of low, right? Because things just aren't going well. They want to stone him. He is at rock bottom. The piano is landed on his head, we said this morning. Then all of a sudden, they don't want to stone him. Okay, David, we'll give you one more shot. And now we're like, oh, not only is, is we not going to stone him, this is our guy again. Uh, he's, he, he, this is David's spoil. He can do whatever he wants because he can accomplish anything he sets his mind to. What an amazing chain, turn of events, isn't it? This is why leadership without conviction is short-lived. We have got to learn as Christians, and I would encourage you in, in your own areas of leadership, you have got to learn to lay your head down at night and say, did I live with integrity? Do I have a clean conscience? And have I done everything in obedience to Christ? Everything else doesn't matter. What people say about you, what people may post about you, the criticism you receive, the, 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 the results of your action, you've got to ask, do I live with integrity? Is my conscience clear? Do I live for the glory of God? If so, go to sleep and sleep well. It is hard thing to do. But if you do not leave, lead with conviction and lead everything in God's hands, you and your leadership will be short-lived. Now, don't you wish the story ended here, right? I mean, it's a good ending of a story. Uh, David grabs the boys, right? All good action movies does this, right? And, and he, he goes and he gets the girls back, gets the band back, gets, gets, gets the children back, right? And they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, you can close your Bibles um, and, and we'll be done for the evening because that's the way life works, right? You've seen the Disney movies. It's the way it always works. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. What happens in verses 21 through 31 they have a business meeting. And what we actually see here is the blessing. But this blessing becomes the source of conflict. Doesn't this sound like modern times? Yeah. In verse 21, David and his men, 400 men, return and meet with the rest of the army at the brook Besor. And here comes the conflict, right? So you've got 400 men who did the fighting, 200 men that did the garden, right? Now, think about the context here. Why was Ziklag attacked and burned so easily? There was no one to guard the city. Achish, the, the king of the Philistines, has the, his entire military might in order to attack Saul. Uh, and they're stationed at Aphek. They're about ready to attack. We'll see it, Lord willing, next week. But they left home base exposed. 
So what does David end up doing? Yes, he does it because there, there are uh, uh, physical needs. They're exhausted. But what he does is he, he sends 400 to do the fighting, but he's got to have 200 to do the guarding, right? Well, what happens is those who did the fighting bring back all the booty and they say, look, you 200 look, it didn't do any of the work. I tell you what, you can have your wives and kids back. You're welcome. <laughs> but we get everything else. We'll split it among us pirates. But the rest of y'all, you, you just, you're lucky you even get your family back. Think there's reason for conflict here? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And through this complaining, in fact, the text describes them as worthless and wicked men are doing this. So David must intervene in verses 23 to 25. David said, you should not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given us into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? What a strong rebuke. For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So instead of favoring those who were involved in the raid, David blesses all of his men. And I want you to notice what, what David does here. First of all, David finally sees the Lord's hand at work here. Now remember, we're looking at literary units. Yes, they're interrupted on purpose, like with the uh, necromancer story. But if you start in chapter 27, you go all the way to, to, to chapter 30. And what you have here is David, the unraveling of David, the man who thinks he's king who is too much like Saul. He trusts in himself. He's easily given over to compromise. And as a result, one bad thing happens after another and people are victimized by him. But it is here in chapter 30 when he is at rock bottom and the piano comes crashing down over his head. What does he do? He starts to find his strength in Christ and not in himself. And here David says, look, you guys believe a lie here. You think you are the ones that got the girls back. You're the ones that got our children back. You're the ones who have accomplished all of this. It is that sort of thinking that God is in this best to begin with. Don't you see? It is God's grace and God's providence that we were successful. It was God's grace and God's providence the giant came tumbling down. It was God's grace and God's providence that, that we, have, we have made it this far. That kept Saul at bay even when he was near to strike. It was God's providence and grace that allowed us to sneak into his bedchambers, to, to, to cut off the, the corner of his robe. It was God's grace and his providence that brought us to this moment. Despite our mistakes, despite our failures, it was God's grace and God's providence. Therefore, we deserve nothing but to worship God who has accomplished all of this. What a change of perspective this is. It's different than Saul, isn't it? You see the generosity that David has in worship. Worship is nothing less than generosity to he who has everything. To return to the one who gives to give it back to him. But you'll notice the second thing David does here. He wants everyone to participate in the victory. You see it there in verse 24. Whether one is guarding the baggage or yielding a blood-soaked sword against the Amalekites, everyone in the army played a part in getting the families back together. You see that? So important for us to see that. And what a reminder it is that God uses people who want to be in the foreground and people who want to stay in the background. Consider a church. 
We often credit pastors, ministers, and some of the public figures, deacons and the other staff and whatnot, with all the good and the bad that comes with the local congregation, right? When good things happen, well, it's because the preacher did this, or the music's doing this, or the youth are at this, or the deacons are leading like this, right? You see them up there, it must be all credit to them. And we often forget the people in the background, the people who are changing diapers for this new family in the nursery. The people who are slain in the kitchen so that we can gather together in fellowship and, and joy. The people who, who, who are meeting on, on the side to, to pray for the needs of the church. The, the people who, who are gathering, uh, not in secret, but, 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 but not for their own praise, to do this or that. Who are supporting this family, who, who are meeting this need, who are doing these things. You mean to tell me that's not of equal importance? See, it's in America where we think that if you see it, it must be better. And if you don't see it, it must be lesser. That is not a gospel perspective. Whether you're front and center or in the back, to serve God with faithfulness is to deserve equal credit. I've used this illustration before, but it's my, probably my favorite scene in the West Wing where the president is talking to his uh, um, his associate chief of staff, uh, deputy chief of staff, I believe is his title. And he says simply, the president says, there's two types of people in the world. There are those who want to be the man. There are those who want to be the man the man depend on. I love that. That is just, I think there's more than two people in the world. But, but at least there's those two people, right? Those who want to be the man. They want to lead the charge. They want to be a David. They want to have the sword. They want to go. They want to get the girls back. They want to get the family back. They want, they, they want to lead to be the man. Then there are those who are content to be the man, to be the woman that the man depends on. Willing to be to the side, to willing to be in the background. The Lord uses both. You see, what matters to the believer is not where we serve, but that we serve. And so what David does in verses 26 to 31 is he distributes all that they recover equally. Thus, David's rhetoric is more than political rhetoric. That is to say, it was more than a 15 to 30 second YouTube ad um, uh, where at the end he says, my name is uh, King David and I approve this message. It's more than just rhetoric to get approval. It was real action, policy that puts into action. So much so that this policy that David established that when 1 Samuel is written, which is a matter of debate, no, no point to get into, that was still the policy. Yes, David is borrowing from, from what the Deuteronomy tells future kings to do, but he is establishing here because this isn't Saul's policy. And David would know because David served under Saul after they would defeat the, the Malachites and, and, and the Moabites and the Philistines. No, this isn't Saul's policy, but this will be David's policy. He will distribute equally because all were important for the victory. The point of this entire text is to demonstrate for us the generosity of David. Unlike Saul, David is an open-fisted king. He gives with generosity. In fact, you'll notice he gives even to the elders of Israel who will be key to crowning David as king. So remember, a few chapters ago, it looked like David would never be king of Israel because he left home. Now, through his generosity, now through his character, the doors are quickly opening to a throne. All because he is a generous king. Now, many come to this text and they're trying to find some deep meaning, I guess, or a simple illustration to put in a book that they can sell. And they say this entire chapter is a lesson for you about godly leadership. 
right? And it's true. You can come to this chapter, you get a lot of principles by God leadership. Remember, the Bible is more than principles. It points us to Christ. So can I show you some of these, these godly principles and leadership? Maybe they bless your soul. David is, you can't read it up there because I'm terrible at, at PowerPoint. Empathy, verse four, right? We see him in, in, in weeping with, with his men as one of his men. See, empathy is leadership. We see faith uh, uh, in his leadership. While his men may turn against him, he turns to, to God as his refuge. We see decisiveness in leadership. Can I tell you, if, 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 if you want... Uh, a simple understanding of leadership, someone needs to make a decision. 90% of leadership, okay? If, hopefully my wife won't get on me. I get a call the other day from my mother-in-law saying, what are y'all bringing to Thanksgiving? Of course, I said, how many are going to be there? We'll count you nine. I said, I'm sorry, governor says I can't go. <laughs> can't go. That's uh, it's, 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 it's the law of the land, and I'm going to uh, enforce that one. That one is sort of important. But, but it's like, what are y'all going to bring? And you know, what's the follow-up question? What are other people bringing? It is, it's like those birds from Jungle Book. I don't know what you want to do today, right? Right? I said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to make macaroni and cheese. Anyone else making mac and cheese? No, I got mac and cheese. Someone made a decision. Who's doing mashed potatoes? Well, we saw, okay, we got mashed potatoes. Who's doing the turkey? We should have started there, but not really. Mac and cheese and mashed potatoes are the best food in the world. Let's just be honest with, with, with it. With a big, giant glass of cold coca-cola no icy devils right that is that is heaven right there put some stuff in with some gravy on top that's thanksgiving who's gonna make a turkey well i'm gonna make a turkey oh good we got turkey we got mashed potatoes we got, we got, we got mac and cheese man says look i'll make green beans we got turkey we got mashed potatoes we got mac and cheese we got green beans we need some stuffing well someone's gonna make stuffing hey these young pop state and they can bring the drinks someone's got to make a decision in leadership that's 90 percent of it even in democracy someone's that was not in my notes i just feel better. You don't have to, if, some, if someone's going to make a decision and you're unwilling to make a decision, live with the decision someone made for you, okay? I didn't realize I was very sensitive about that. <laughs> Kindness. Let me go back to uh, learning this lesson. Apparently, I did not just demonstrate that. You notice how generous he is to the Egyptian, king, Egyptian slave. Very generous and, and, and kind. Persistence. If you believe and you lead with conviction, that this is the right thing to do, and you've gone about it the right way, keep with it. doesn't mean you shouldn't be flexible. 2020 is an example of that. Be flexible, but be persistent. Don't believe every lie you tell yourself or what the critics may tell you. Be persistent. Integrity, duh. You want to ruin leadership? Lead without integrity. Here's David. This is what Saul did. Look where Saul is right now. He's gone crazy. We're here because Saul's gone crazy. I'll tell you what, we're going we're gonna to be different. We're going to leave it with integrity. And it begins with me. Finally, there is fairness. Of course, all of these bleed together, don't they? He's fair. Even though everyone else tells him one thing, he says, no, we're going to be fair. But the reality is this text is not about leadership principles. And they're there. I, I, think, I think they're good. And you can probably find some others. But the point of this text is not how to be a good godly leader. Rather, it's a story about generosity. It opens up with David at his rock bottom. By the end of the story, we see a king who is triumphant and generously gives out presents. That's the story in a nutshell, isn't it? You can tweet that if you'd like. But why does the king do this? Why is this king so generous? 
it is not because his men deserve it. In fact, go back to verse 20. What does it say? Everyone recognizes this is his spoil. It's not mine. Everyone says at the end of the day, we were all ready to throw in the towel. We were all ready to quit. We were all ready to flee, but not David. He led us. He led us back to our families. He recovered our families. He recovered more than our families, more than what we lost. This is his spoil, which means when David gives out of the bounty, he does it not because they deserve it, but because that's the sort of king he is. He is a generous, open-fisted king. But also notice, he generously gives away gifts to all who are associated with him. You see, gifts given without earning them is grace. But in order to receive these gifts, you must join his ranks. Now, does any of this sound familiar to you? It should. Maybe you've never read the story of, of, of the Amalekites from David's perspective. Maybe you've never read that, but I, I bet you've heard the story before. Was Christ not at rock bottom outside the gates of Jerusalem? And did he, as any great king would, after being betrayed, after being condemned, after being nailed to a criminal's cross, after, after his men deserted him, after his enemies mocked him, did he not arrest victory from that defeat? Oh, and how long did it take him to do that? Three days? That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? When it comes to the Bible, we need to see that the Bible is a unified story. And so we see these themes, though we must be careful not to push them beyond what we're allowed to. But when we see these themes, what we see are patterns that find their climax in Christ. And one of those patterns, often overlooked, is this emphasis on the third day. Can I, can I prove it to you quickly? It, we will, this is our last Sunday evening for a few weeks, so it's okay if we go long, right? All right. Notice, first of all, that the first time we see life in the Bible, it is on day three. God causes vegetation to come out of the ground, and it is out of that vegetation. We get the trees that, that, that leads to, to the trees that sustain life in the garden. It is the third day where there is life in creation. Or consider, secondly, that, that when Abraham is commissioned by God to go sacrifice his son, uh, how many days did it take for him to find the place, not of the, the sacrifice of his son, but the rescue of his son? It was on the third day. We see it there in Genesis 22, if you don't believe me. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two, uh, two of his servants, I forgot to take a part out, his, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, he lifts up his eyes. Remember, Isaac doesn't die. It's not the day of death. According to Hebrews, it's the day of resurrection. Hebrews 11. Thirdly, in Sinai, the Sinai covenant there in Exodus 19 was made on the third day. Exodus 19.11, there's more references to this in Exodus, Exodus 19, but we'll just look at this one. On the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all people. Notice what you have here. You have the people of Israel turning to the nation of Israel because God has come down as he did in, in the garden to be with his people. In the Bible, there are two places where God dwells and they are related, particularly in the Garden of Eden. There are gardens and there are mountains. Here we have the mountain of God where he comes down to be with his people and he does so on the third day. Fourthly, 
when you, one we may recognize immediately is that Jonah was in the depths of Sheol. Could have been a, a, a literal grave, that's a literal resurrection, or just uh, metaphorically speaking, he was at the point of death for three days. So it says in Jonah 1.17, the Lord appointed a great fish, sea monster is the word there, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster three days and three nights. Why is this so important? Jesus makes a connection to his emphasis on three in Matthew 12. Just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is not literally three days and three nights in, in the tomb. The point is not to be literal. The point is here to be uh, 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 biblical here. The idea is there are these Patterns throughout Scripture that climax in Christ. In fact, the prophets tell us in Hosea 6 that the great hope of the prophets is found in our raising up on the third day. So Hosea will say, come, let us return to the Lord. This is, this is the chapter of repentance. For he has torn us, but he may heal us. Sounds like David, doesn't it? When David runs from God, God tears him down to the point of rock bottom only to heal him. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. This isn't a literal. You got to wait three days where God's going to show up. But the idea is the pattern here. It is on the third day when God revives, when God resurrects, when God heals, when God arrests from defeat, he is triumphant over it, as David does here. So these patterns we see in this text point us to something greater. Here we read of a king who after three days is triumphant over his enemies and is generous with the spoils. Is that not grace? Is that not in, the, in a nutshell the gospel? You are not here because you have deserved it or because you have earned it. You are here because grace has given it to you. May we not take it for granted. The gospel is the story of a victorious, rescuing king who comes down triumphantly over our enemies. And though it is his spoil, though it is his victory, though it is his triumphance, he is a generous, open-fisted We call him Savior. That's good news. Let's pray.